what is the meaning of Christmas? As we're all gearing up for yet another year of holiday cheer, uh, I thought I'd prepare ourselves by asking, what's the whole point? What is the point of Christmas? And all the good little Sunday school boys and girls shout with a resounding, Jesus, right? Okay, it's about Jesus, yes. But what about Jesus is it that we're celebrating? Because after all, Jesus is the answer to why we celebrate, say, Easter as well. So what's, uh, what's the distinctive element of Christmas that makes it different? What is it about Jesus that uh, brings this increased joy through this season? Why the overboard lights? As you're going down Main Street, whatever town you're in, you can probably see everyone putting up their lights. Why the abundance of gifts under the Christmas tree? Why the Christmas tree itself? Why the heavy dose of holiday cheer? Why the figgy pudding? (laughs) Why? And the answer is God endorsed it in Jesus. And how he endorsed it is probably the most underemphasized and misunderstood aspect of Jesus. And that is... His flesh, his flesh, the incarnation. As we've been entrenched in John's gospel this year, we often find that John kind of has our head in the clouds, doesn't he? It's it's very spiritual, ethereal at times, and he wants us to see that this man, Jesus, isn't just a man. He's God. He is God. In fact, John's emphasis is so much so on the divinity that he completely omits the nativity scenes that the other gospels begin with. This is not at the denial of the humanity of Jesus. It's just that John really wants you to see in his gospel, hey, Jesus is God. But since it's Christmas, I wanted to take a break from John, which I'm sure you're all happy about, uh, to, to highlight not just the divinity of Jesus, but the humanity of Jesus. I want us to remember why the incarnation propels us to put up the Christmas tree, why it propels us to tell those enchanted tales about the magic of Christmas spirit. What is it that makes us do all these things? And that is, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That really is the answer to why we do all of these things. And it's taken from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. These are the words of God. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus, that unto us a child is born. We have the gift of Christ But Lord, I pray that as we read this ancient scripture, that you would make it alive and anew to us. Your word is living and active. It is for us today. So Lord, I pray that you would impress heavily on us today your Holy Spirit so that we might have a right conception, a right view and understanding of what Christmas is about and what the prophet Isaiah is still telling the church today 
Even the church of village church, centuries after being written, Lord, we thank you that you still speak to us through your word. Pray you'd guide my words. Lord, I pray that anything that I would say that is not of you uh, would be uh, in one ear and right out the other. Lord, we want your son to be glorified. We want your word to be heard this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this prophecy in Isaiah begins with a stark reminder that we were in the dark. Verse 2 speaks of a people who walk in deep darkness. But what is this darkness that is illuminated by the great light that Isaiah speaks of? What is the darkness? Well, the darkness that Isaiah speaks of is the darkness of sin. The darkness of sin. But let us remember that humanity did not begin here in the darkness. Though it can sometimes seem, as you go about your day, that humanity has always been walking in this darkness, we must remember that God created the world and pronounced it good. In the beginning, God created and he said, let there be light, and there was light. And what he made was good. And this is really going to be my whole point today. What God creates is good. That should be simple enough, but we often forget it, right? Uh, he says it's very good, in fact. He looks on it and is pleased in Genesis. This is the, the, the picture that you should get as you read the beginning of Genesis, that God made something and it was very good. It was beautiful. He endorsed it uh, by, by telling the, the, the creation to enjoy it, right? Name the animals, have dominion, have marriage, eat of the garden, be married, have children, enjoy being a creature. This is what Genesis speaks of in the very beginning. It was a good picture. Not a dark picture. But very quickly, if you keep reading in Genesis, it doesn't take very long for the darkness to enter. The scene quickly changes from glorious creation to a very dark rebellion. Adam and Eve transgressed the one commandment that they were given. Do not eat of that fruit. They did the one thing that they were not supposed to do. They transgressed the covenant and they believed the lie of the serpent and God cursed the creation that he had just made because it rebelled against him. There's the curse given to Adam and Eve and the serpent and creation. He did, But he didn't leave them without hope, did he? If we read Genesis 3, amid the cursing of the serpent, this very dark scene, God still promised mankind this in Genesis 3.15. He said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the, the serpent here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the enmity is the struggle of a sinful human nature that causes us to walk in darkness, constantly tempted by the serpent. This is how you and I live every day. You feel it, don't you? You can, you can feel the darkness around you. That, uh, that we walk in darkness, though, is not only complicated by the blindness of it, we're bumping into things all the time, but also we have the sting of sin that taunts our bruised heel. It hurts. We start to sin. We're like, oh, again. We're bumping into this. We're sinning. We keep doing it over and over again, and that's Satan eating at you. That is part of the curse. Jesus said it was going to happen at the very beginning. When his word spoke to them, he gave that, that judgment upon them, but... Even amid the judgment, like the striking of a match, uh, bringing a flickering hope in that darkness, God promised that one of those offspring from Eve would crush the head of the serpent and his offspring. You can almost miss it as you're reading that. In Genesis 3.15, it can almost seem like all bad news, but Jesus actually, he gave us a promise there, didn't he? 
He is going to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, the people who had walked in darkness have seen a great light. Even if it's a flickering hope at that point, even if it's very small back then, they had seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. That son will be the one that crushes the serpent's head. That son is the one that will overcome darkness with the light. The people have seen a great light. That's what we're looking at in this Christmas season. And this is why we see the response of great joy in verse 3. The rejoicing is over the fact that the yoke of your burdens, it mentions in verse 4, have been placed upon another. The punishing staff for our shoulder has struck another. The rod of our oppressor that drove us to sin has been broken. That's good news, church. And through this decisive blow, it has rendered our battle garments that are soaked in blood as useful for nothing more than fuel for our fires, is what it says. Think about that. Think about verse 5. Look what it says. This is beautiful language that Isaiah employs here. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Just think about that imagery of the boots and the warrior in battle going on, blood-soaked garments. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. These boots are the boots that shod our heels for the trampling of the serpent's head. But Isaiah says, you actually won't need these anymore. He says, you can throw these under the fire uh, where your stockings are hung on your fireplace. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This decisive blow that this son has done has made the battle over. It's done. Yes, we still fight every day. Yes, we still feel the sting of it. But at the end of the day, we can look at that moment of the incarnation and see what has been done there is finished. The war is won in Jesus. In other words, Satan and his offspring will be overcome by that son that is promised, the son that is given. Jesus will crush the serpent's head, but how? How does he do this? How does the child that is born do this? Romans 8 tells us. Romans 8, 3 tells us how, and it might be surprising to you. Think about this. It says, For God has done with the law... Weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness, catch that word, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He, that is Jesus, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hmm. So the son given in Isaiah 9 came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not in sinful flesh. Right? It's in the likeness of it. It was similar to the way every person was born. In the flesh, the way you and I were born in the flesh. But remember, his birth was distinctive. It was a little bit different than your birth. He was born of a woman like you were. He was born under the law like you were. But he was born of a virgin. None of you in here have been born of a virgin. You have been born of your mother, yes, but of your father also, right? You have a mother and a father. You were conceived by your earthly father and your earthly mother. But Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by that heavenly father. He had a a new birth, a new kind of humanity that Jesus was introducing to our old humanity, right? He was like you and I, that he was truly human. Yes, he was born in the flesh, but being conceived of the Holy Spirit, he was born without sin. 
Jesus had no sin. And we know his body was without sin because the very way in which he condemned sin was in the flesh. Jesus overcame sin in his body, in his flesh. And that's exactly how our salvation comes to us, in the flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh to condemn sin. That is his method of doing it. Now, why is it that we so often think that the flesh is the problem? Right? Have you thought about that before? This is why I said that the incarnation is perhaps the most misunderstood aspect of Jesus, his body. Bodies aren't the problem. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone condemn something, a sinful practice, and say, that's of the flesh. We don't do that. That is of the flesh. I've heard it literally this week. Someone say, that's of the flesh. Right? You hear it all the time in Christian circles. As if anything material is inherently sinful. And you're going to have this through Christmas season. There's going to be Christians that are going to try to guilt you for experiencing life in the flesh. You shouldn't have all that stuff. Look at all those gifts. That's of the flesh. You need to be spiritual, right? You are going to hear this through this Christmas season. I want you to kind of mentally get yourself in the right place so you can understand where that is coming from. That is actually a false teaching. That stems from something that creeped up early in Orthodox Christianity called Gnosticism. Now, I'm not going to go into all of what Gnosticism says, but it, it covers a wide range of beliefs. Uh, but its essential belief is that there is an inherent evil in material things, including the body. That your body is something that you need to get rid of. They believe the goal of humans is for the soul to be liberated from the material world through a process of enlightenment. And sometimes this creeps into Christianity and we can start to think the same thing. That our goal is just to get out of here. Like this is, this is the problem right here. My flesh. i got to get this skin off me because this is not what Christianity is about. It's about spiritual things. But this is not what Christians believe. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is not what Orthodox Christianity teaches. God creating the material world should have been enough for us to affirm its inherent goodness. God made it and said it was good. Why can't we believe that? Why can't we believe that our flesh is actually a good thing? Very good, in fact, is what he says. And if that wasn't enough, after the fall of the good creation, God still makes a plan to save it. He doesn't say, man, that was the problem. Let's just move on from that plan B. No, he says, no, this is good, and it's worth saving. I'm going to save it. And not by disembodiment, not by scratching the creation, actually the very opposite. He promises to save the creation through embodiment. We thought about that before. He's going to enter into it through the offspring of the woman. Your offspring, from your offspring, there will be one who will crush the head. It was going to take having kids to do this. That's a pretty fleshly act, isn't it? It's going to take having kids. It's going to take sweat from your brow, making a hard-earned living to get to where we have the incarnation. It's going to take a long time, and it's not going to be right off the bat. This is a long, drawn-out process that took generation after generation of fleshly acts, humans being humans, until the promise finally came in Jesus. And when it, didn't, when it came, it didn't come apart from the flesh. It came in a very fleshly way. It came with Jesus being born of a woman in a manger. The scene that we remember every Christmas. It's about the most natural human thing you can think of. And it's actually a good thing. That's what Jesus actually comes to, to highlight for us. There's nothing wrong with being a human. That is what God made you. The incarnation of Jesus is the divine affirmation of the material world. He made it. 
It's mine, he says, and I'm coming to take it back by Jesus, uh, uh, by sending Jesus uh, to come and save the world. He was saying this is good. Right. That's what Jesus says. I came to save the world, not destroy it. I came to save the world. He came. And the first thing that Jesus does when he comes into the world, what does he do? We We read it in John's gospel. He goes to a marriage, a very normal human thing. Right. When two people come together and he affirms the feasting and drinking. He shows up to the party. So much so that when the, when the wine runs out, what does Jesus do? Hey, let's keep partying, guys. Let's keep going. I know you, you, most of you guys have probably had a little bit too much to drink. I know I'm saving the best for last, but here you go. Here is wine. Feast. Eat. Drink. Be merry. Marriage. There it is. Jesus is showing up, and he's, uh, he's endorsing it in a real way. And this makes spiritual people who think that they're pious very uncomfortable. It feels a little bit wrong, doesn't it? Being in your skin and doing all these fleshly acts. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they call him a glutton and a tax collector, right? A glutton and a drunkard. He hangs out with or a glutton and a, uh, a drunkard. He hangs out with friends of sinners. He hangs out with sinners themselves. He does all these really human things, and the people don't like it, do they? This guy seems like a, another human being, because he is another human being. <laughs> He, he seems like something I did not anticipate. He sees sick people, and he doesn't speed up their death to disembody them. He doesn't want them to get out of the body. No, he heals them to, again, affirm the good health in the body. Life and life abundantly. He sees friends mourning at the side of death. And what does this man do? He weeps because he's a man. He cries. God in Jesus does the most humanly things possible, like weeping and crying. There's not many things that are more human than crying, is there? And this is what Jesus does. He wants us to see this. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't go away and cry in a corner. He weeps in front of his friends. He eats with his friends. He hangs out with his friends. Then when he sees Lazarus and his death, uh, he doesn't see Lazarus' death as an escape from the evil body. What does he do? He brings Lazarus back from the dead. This is a Gnostic nightmare. Right? If, if Gnosticism is true, then Lazarus just had the best day of his life. But Jesus says, no. He's even going to die again one day. But life is worth living. Life is good. It is worth being a human. It is a good thing. What else does Jesus do? Well, he, he gathers his friends around before his bloody death on the cross, and he institutes a meal, doesn't he? Let's eat together. It, it's a covenantal act that symbolizes communion. This is how you draw closer to me is what he says. We do this very human thing like eating, and you're supposed to do it until I return. Proclaim this until I return. Proclaim my death until I return. And it's not just a spiritual meal, is it? It is spiritual, but it's not just spiritual. It's physical. It's wine. It's bread, things that humans make. Humans make bread. Humans make wine. It takes time. It ferments over time. It's a very human act. And if it's not fleshly enough to say that it's bread and wine, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. This is my flesh that you are eating. It rubs us almost the wrong way. Like, what are you talking about? But Jesus' whole point is this is how I saved the world. He condemned sin in the flesh. Right? The kind of flesh that Jesus has when he resurrects from the dead. Think about that. Resurrection isn't just spiritual. It's physical. Jesus has a body, the kind of body that he goes to Thomas, and Thomas is like, I don't buy it. And he's like, feel it. Touch touch it. 
Feel my scars. I died and I'm alive and I have a body and I'm hanging out with you. I'm here now. He hangs out after the resurrection with his friends and they're out on the beach and he says, you know what? Let's have a fish fry. Let's eat some fish. (laughs) And it's Jesus that is the one suggesting this. Let's make some fish. Let's have some food. Let's eat together. He's with his friends on the road to Emmaus. And what does he do? Hey, let's go have dinner together. And it's not until they eat with Jesus, they commune with him, that their eyes are open to who he truly is. So they're coming closer to God through very human acts in their flesh. So Jesus wants you to see how salvation touches all the senses. He wants you to experience life, taste a meal with him, feel his love for you in the hug of someone being his hands and his feet in this Christmas season. Smell the aroma of Christ as it's coming off of people that are loving you, your brothers and sisters. Hear from the mouth of babes as they proclaim the gospels. The baby is crying. The the big families to getting together to celebrate Jesus. Experience him in this way, in the flesh. The same way that he came to save you, in the flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we live our salvation out, in fear and trembling. We don't do it to, uh, by getting away from the physical, by getting away from the things that God created. He says, no, you worship me through these things. You worship me in the body, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This church is what Christmas is about. This is what an incarnational Christmas looks like. It looks like worshiping God in what he made you, in your body. So as you're gearing up for Christmas this week, I want you to remember the point of Christmas. And that is that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel doesn't mean us with God. Think about that. The difference in God with us, not us with God. He comes to us. He doesn't strip us down to bear spirits to be with him. He dresses up for our party. By putting on human flesh. He accommodates us. He says, no, this is good and it's so good that I'm going to enter into it and it's not going to taint me. I'm going to glorify it even more. When Jesus came in the flesh, this was God saying, this is really, really good stuff and I am unwilling to give up on it. I'm going to save it. So how are we to respond to this amazing fact of the incarnation? As we look at Christmas What do we do when we say, wow, God came in the flesh, and that's an amazing thing, and he's even saving us. He's condemning sin in the flesh. What do we do? The text tells us in verse 3. Let's look. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So our response is rejoicing. And as with joy to the harvest, it says there, as with joy to the harvest shows us the kind of joy and the method of joy that we are supposed to have. It's an incarnational rejoicing. It's an incarnational joy. We rejoice in this season like you would after reaping an abundant harvest. You divvy up the spoil, right? You're all eating. You're all feasting lavishly. You share it with everyone. You show God how grateful you are, not by holding back. But by indulging more, you feast like it's the biggest Christmas bonus you've ever had in your life. Like you just received the biggest present ever because you did in Jesus. You did. When God gives you extra, it's not for you to bury in the dirt. It's to invest it and invest it in the things that matter. Like love, joy, peace, hospitality, generosity to others, sharing with others the things that God has given to you. So bring out the cloth napkins, break out the aged wine, do all the things that celebrate uh, that celebrate Jesus has come in the flesh. That china that's dusty on the wall that you never use that has Christmas stuff all over it, for goodness sake, 
Use it. Put it, to, put it to use for the glory of God because God has blessed you with these things. This is actually how we worship him through this Christmas season. Rejoice at the incarnation of the Son of God the way you would as with joy at the harvest. It's the biggest harvest he's ever reaped because Jesus has come. So celebrate the crushing of Satan's head by a victory feast. Jesus has won. We who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Through this Advent season, we've been reflecting on how we get prepared for Jesus. We, we look around, there's lots of darkness, but we get prepared for Jesus by recognizing that a light has come. We who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on us, the light is shown. Christmas has come. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Amen? Let's pray.